Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. Listeners have asked us to provide pointers to some of the resources we talk about on the show. We now have links to books and articles referenced in recent podcasts that are available on our website. We also offer full transcripts. Go to jimrutshow.com. That's jimrutshow.com. Today's guest is Forrest Landry. Forrest is a thinker, writer, and philosopher. And this is the fourth time he's been on our show. Actually, it's the fifth time, now that I think about it. He first appeared in EP31, where we engaged in a broad survey of his thinking on various topics. And then more recently, in EP96, EP109, and EP128, we explored his imminent metaphysics. That's imminent, I-M-M-A-N-E-N-T, metaphysics. And no, people, I did not reach for my pistol. So welcome back, Forrest. Good day. Great to see you again. Yeah, I've always enjoyed this. I was telling Forrest in the pregame discussion, you know, philosophy is not my natural field, but I always feel like I have, you know, work on my muscles when I'm talking to Forrest and I really enjoy our conversations. I think they've been really good and we've been getting some good feedback on them. So today we're going to talk about his thoughts on his non-relativistic ethics, as he calls it. I'd like to start out by having you place, if you could, your non-relativistic ethics in the broader domain of ethical philosophy, and maybe tell us a little bit about what you mean by the non-relativistic part. And when I talk about the domain of philosophy of ethics generally, people talk about it being divided roughly into three domains. One is the consequentialist school, of which utilitarianism is probably the most well-known. The consequentialists essentially say you should evaluate your ethics based on the result, the consequences. In utilitarianism, the measure is the greatest happiness for the greatest numbers. You know, the second school, and been a big tradition of this in the West, at least until recently, is what's called the deontological school of ethics, which is based on reason and or some kind of deep universal morality, if such a thing were to exist. And Kant's categorical imperative, which says that If you behave such that if everybody else did what you were proposing to do, it would be good as an example of deontological ethical rule. And then kind of the older school of ethics is so-called virtue ethics, most famously propagated by Aristotle. It's also making a bit of a comeback at the present. And that's an ethics based on right behavior from an internal perspective. Am I courageous? Am I truthful? Am I temperate? Etc. So anyway, Frankly, after having read your paper, I can't place you squarely in any one of the three, So, but I see aspects of it that fit in all three. So maybe talk a little bit about what you mean when you say non-relativistic ethics and how that relates to these historical schools of philosophical thought about ethics. Awesome. Yes, that's a great question. So the first notion is to uh, look at the relative versus non-relative. So what do we mean when we say an ethics is relative, which is kind of the Uh, more common position to be thinking about these things. So in the sense that there is a chooser, a person engaged in some action, um, and a world in which those actions will have effects. Um, There's also the relationship between the the chooser and the world, right? So there's a kind of conduit of connection that that exists between the two. And so in, in a sense, when we're talking about 
what to choose, right? Because if we're, if we're looking at ethics as a kind of guide to choice, then the basis of that choice could be defined in terms of, you know, what is outside, or this would be kind of the consequences, uh, or what is inside the self, i.e. this would be values and things like that, uh, or some logic that has to do with the channel, with the, with the connection between self and reality. Um, so, so in this sense, we, we, we do actually have kind of all three, uh, as, as you mentioned, branches of, of, of ethical thinking kind of engaged. Um, but, the, but the notion here is, is that if it's a relative ethics, then what is right to do is going to depend upon the situation that one is in. So if I'm um, you know, in one particular environment, then the, the, the choices about what's right to do is going to depend upon specific features of that environment. And the, the kind of historical um, perspective that has emerged from this is that there is, there is no such thing as a single set of principles that fits in all circumstances that can be applied uh, universally. So in, in this sense, when I'm, when I'm saying it's a non-relativistic ethics, I'm actually making a fairly strong claim. I'm saying, yes, there are principles that could be uh, characterized as being relative to choice itself. In other words, not relative to situation or relative to the particular chooser. Um, obviously, if we were to say, well, uh, that person um, has this body of ethics and this other person has that other body of ethics, then, then, then we haven't actually created a general something which is a study of ethics that is not specific to either person or to situation. So in this sense, what we're talking about is a set of principles that basically create good choices or that would inform what is a practical, worthwhile, or meaningful choice or something that has value or, or embodies character or, or things that we would normally regard as good in some way or another. So in, in, in one sense, you know, the, the notion of ethics has to do with you know, how do we make good choices? What are the principles that would inform how to make a choice that will have uh, beneficial outcomes, either with respect to, you know, the world or to self or to, uh, again, something to do with the, the relationship of integrity that exists um, either in the, the self or the world or the connection. So in this sense, the flavor of the ethical thinking that, that I come from, in, in one sense, sort of looks like it has a uh, virtue ethics sort of basis. Uh, in the sense that I say, well, there are things that can be used to characterize goodness of choice. Like somewhere along the way, we have to define a little bit about what we mean by a good choice or a, a choice that has benefit or that is worthwhile or virtuous in some sense. And so in, in, in that sort of degree, we're, we're, we're starting from a kind of values-based orientation. Um, but then we, we kind of move into a way of thinking of, well, there's, there is a, a set of principles that will translate those values into practices that, that will move us from the, the general notion of principles into the specific notion of what do we choose at any given moment. Insofar as those principles are, you know, again, in specific to self and in specific to situation, they are truly universal principles about how to make good choices. Then in that sense, we, we're kind of in that uh, second category of, of ethics that you mentioned, which would be you know, kind of an ontological or foundational perspective of what it means to do good ethical thinking. I think the one thing that uh, does also play into this, although not not as obviously or as strongly, is is that to to some extent we are actually concerned about you know what are the effects of these choices. But um, in a sense of you know we're not talking about it from a purpose point of view, but more from a integrity point of view. Like what would increase the integrity of self the universe and the relationship between self and universe. 
Um, so in the sense that we, we would describe integrity as being an enabling characteristic that would uh, allow for the continuance, you know, the conscious, sustainable evolution of uh, self, world, and the relationship between them. Um, then in effect, we, we are to, to some extent concerned with a, a kind of consequentiality. But it's not a consequentiality that is just observed in the world. It's, it's also observed in the self and in the relationship. So in, in this sense, yes, the, 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 the ethics, the way I'm thinking about it, does actually partake or at least integrate um, some aspects of all three of the uh, schools of thought that you're speaking to. But I, I do feel that, like I said, it, it, it kind of begins with the sort of values-based orientation and then moves through a kind of foundational perspective. And, and um, only in the, um, the, the notion of how we characterize uh, integrity does does it have a kind of utilitarian aspect, but on the other hand, there is a very strong sense that that, that ethical thinking and philosophy, unlike you know, we could have a conversation on AI, for example, but that's not something that we would personally be able to to do much with unless we happen to be an AI researcher. Whereas anything that we say about the nature of ethics that helps us to really know how to make good, effective choices that that genuinely uh, have benefits uh, personally and interpersonally and and, and globally that. Uh, this is in inherently practical in a very deep way. Yeah, I think that's really good. And one of the things I really enjoyed about this paper is that you use the term effective choice. I should have counted it, damn it, but it's a bunch, right? And it's sort of the pivot around which you organize your thinking that this is not about intent necessarily or you know some kind of soft and gauzy kind of spiritualistic kind of thinking. It's really about effective choice. Now, of course, that does cause me to ask the question, in your mind, how does one think about what does effective mean? Well, in one sense, we would say we could refer back to value, and then, of course, we could get into a whole thing about how to characterize value. But it, it actually turns out to be much easier than that. Um, in the same sense as, like, say, with a game of pool, the way at which I make the shot can set myself up to be able to make the next shot. So... For example, if I, if I make a choice that somehow results in my not ever being able to make a choice again, then, then that wouldn't really be a very effective choice because, in effect, it doesn't promote the capacity to continue to choose. So there's, there's essentially two sides, right? A, an effective choice has this sense of having a consequence, i.e. having an effect in the world, doing something, making something happen. Uh, but it also has this potentiality aspect. It has to uh, result in the potential for future choices that themselves could be effective. So in effect, there's a, <laughs> not merely meaning to do the pun, but there's a there's this kind of dual aspect. There's the um, effectiveness in the sense of creating change, and there's effectiveness in the sense of preserving the capacity to create change, or potentially to even increase the capacity to have effect and to create change. So there's a there's a there's an emphasis on capacity building. There's an emphasis on um, the sort of potentials that are associated with the choices uh, that we make, as well as the the, the manifest um, results of of the choice. So in effect, when we're when we're looking at what is the notion of an effective choice, we're we're looking at a, a kind of a product of all of the changes that have happened, and all of the capacities or the changes that could happen. And in this sense, the uh, the notion of maximizing effectiveness can therefore take a very sort of mathematical character or actually a fairly uh, substantive one uh, in the sense that uh, we're including the notion of potentiality as being an inherent part of it. You never use the word, but in 
economics and some social change domains, we sometimes use the term optionality, right? And I got the sense that your potentiality is very, very similar to the concept of increasing one's optionality in any given situation, which is generally considered to be a good, even in something as hard-nosed as economic analysis. Yeah, I would definitely agree that that that's very consistent with the way I'm thinking about it. So there's a sense of, you know, optionality as in the future capacity to make choices. And, you know, that can be represented in a lot of different ways. Obviously, we can think about, you know, what a monetary instrument allows us to do as, as, as a capacity building thing. But in this sense, you know, we're, we're looking at potentiality as effectively being sort of much more connected to, to a almost physical substrate. It's like a, when, when we think about, you know, our own minds, for example, we have the capacity to remember um, experiences from the past and, and the, uh, the selection of any one of the things that we might remember is, is, is a kind of optionality, but there's no real way to characterize, you know, the total things that I can remember very easily or the, the rate at which I can remember. There's, there's ways to sort of think about it in a kind of information theoretic sense, but we have to make a lot of assumptions about how the, the mind or the brain works in order to do that. And these end up being uh, assumptions which should probably be held with considerable agnosticism. Makes sense. Now, early on in the paper, you make a careful set of distinctions between what you call ethics and what people call morality. Might be useful to run through that for a bit. Great. Yeah. Part of the reason for making this distinction is to just sort of highlight what is the aim? Like, what, where, where am I trying to go? So, in a sense that we're looking at what are the general principles of choice, we're we're again sort of treating the relationship between self and reality as a kind of fundamental. So I don't necessarily posit that selves live in realities and that in the sense the notion of reality is primary in the, in the sense of some sort of container or, or collection of objects and, and, and interactions and stuff like that. I, I take the notion of, of the relationship between self and reality as, as if I don't know anything about it. Like I'm, I'm just presuming that there is a subjectivity and there's an objectivity and there's this connection between them, but I don't necessarily presume that any particular self is going to be in any particular world or that, um, you know, there's a single world that has all selves as, as, as proper contents. Um, so, you know, these are kinds of things that, that might be default assumptions associated with a lot of thinking in this space, but insofar as you know, I can think about ethical behavior on the internet in some forum, like on Facebook or in, in an email context or something like that. Um, and I can think about ethical behavior, you know, at the workplace as being very different than than, than what might be ethical behavior, um, you know, in, in some sort of family setting or on a sports team. Now, normally, like I said, we would treat these as, as essentially specific contexts in which I, as an actor, would be acting. And that if we're looking for general principles that work across all of these different domains of action or, or worlds in which one is having and, and sharing experience, then in effect, we're, we're, we're trying to distinguish it from codes which are specific to any one of those worlds. Like, for instance, with a sports game, um, you know, what is uh, the set of rules that define, you know, how to play the game and what's allowed and what isn't allowed would be a kind of code that's specific to just that world. Um, but the, the 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 game that is being played there, of course, could be very different than the kind of game that we might be playing in, say, you know, on on some sort of Facebook app or or someplace that is, um, you know, a completely virtualized setting, you know, a, a mud or you know, uh, Eve Online or something like that. So. In effect, to talk about what are the 
principles of effective choice, we want to disentangle it from the specific uh, circumstances that we would normally characterize as the kind of rules of the game. So when I'm thinking about moral codes, I'm thinking about codes which are particular to a game or particular to a world. Whereas I'm thinking about ethics, I'm thinking about what is it that lives in the self, which could be participating in many different worlds, that would act as a guide or a or a kind of generalization as to what do we mean by effective choice insofar as it attaches and connects directly to the notion of choice itself, i.e. to the notion of agency or to action or to uh, something that somebody uh, does, that there's an expression of some sort or another that moves um, information or energy or, or pattern from the self into the world, whichever world that happens to be, and from whichever self that happens to be, um, you know, thinking about this. So in that sense, the, the, the notion of ethics is about principles, whereas the notion of moral codes is more about rules. And both of these can affect how we uh, engage in practice. And you actually warn a couple of different places that tendency to define right or wrong in some absolute sense can actually impinge upon the ability to act ethically. Yeah, so in this particular observation, we're, we're kind of making a transition from what are the ethical principles to what are the kinds of implications that these ethical principles would have. So, for example, if I were to assert that the entire universe was just perfectly causal, if there was no optionality or choice at all, if everything was essentially completely deterministic, then in effect, the kinds of things that would be uh, defined as values or the kinds of things that would allow for um, the optionality of, of being of good character or, or not would, would essentially be uh, removed from the, the possibility of even being considered. So in, in one sense, we're sort of pointing out that the notion of ethics connects to the notion of choice. And that in order for us to uh, have a theory of ethics, we have to actually have a theory of choice. We have to have a, a well-founded concept of choice uh, connected to that, not just a, a notion of effectiveness or goodness. Um, so part of the the infrastructure that essentially allows for us to know that choice is real, that there is essentially a, a kind of truth to the fundamental notion of the uh, sense that we have, that we have personal agency and that we can select among multiple options, that there's a kind of uh, emergence from potentiality into actuality uh, that isn't completely defined by prior circumstances, that um, this is a, a big part of what, what life is about, that to some extent we can't really validly consider the notion of life without having um, some notion of, of value associated with that and that the values themselves are connected to things which have to do with uh, these, these non-deterministic, these, these you know, kind of what would seem to be random but it, and, and nonetheless meaningful uh, engagements that a person can have in the world. We talked about this before on, I think, a couple of the earlier episodes, but I think it, it bears talking about again in this particular context. And that is the concept of self is always important in your work. And, you know, in my own work, thinking about the scientific study of consciousness and closely related ideas in artificial general intelligence, human level and beyond, when we talk about self, are we smuggling in the idea of a human type self or is your use of self broad enough to include both super and supra-human conscious cognition entities, or maybe even unconscious cognition entities? So when you say self, what are you loading in with that? 
Well, I'm, I'm not loading in just the human. I, I would view that if the theory of non-relativistic ethics is, is, is genuinely what it claims to be, that it would be true for aliens living in some other universe, um, not just on a different world in this, uni- in this universe, but, but just literally inherent in the nature of consciousness itself. If there's uh, any sense in which the notion of choice or consciousness or beingness happens in a kind of subjective way, uh, that these principles of ethics would would actually be applicable. And so, um, no, it's not connected to human in any specific sense or, or, or even the notion of animal or, or uh, you know, what, w- what we would might regard as, uh, you know, what, how we relate to consciousness. But it is definitely um, much more connected to the sort of foundational substrate of what it means to be subjective. And in that sense, um, you know, I'm not necessarily importing any kind of humanistic way of thinking particularly, but I am basically importing something. Well, I wouldn't say importing. I'd say it was already present that the notion of consciousness is genuinely relevant to these kinds of considerations, that the notion of choices is genuinely relevant and that um, in a certain sense, you know, we can start to get into the notion of what is the relationship between self and choice. And so to clarify that, and this is something which is probably going to be uh, a little bit unexpected, but um, while the sort of common way of thinking about this in, in, in much discourse is that we sort of presume from our own experience and, and so on that self has choice. But it's it's actually interesting to really look at the notion of what does it mean to have something? You know, like if I if I if I begin to analyze that concept or begin to really understand the relationship between choice, change, and causation, and to really understand the relationship between a subjective and objective, which is what the, the content and the body of the description of the metaphysics actually is about, then it quickly becomes apparent that it's more correct for us to say that choice has self, that the, that the, that the notion of ownership is actually in the, in the other direction, that choice is in some really basic sense and more basic and more fundamental than even our notion of self in any specific characterization or even the general notion as, as, as a totality. So in effect, when we're, when we're saying self, we're basically saying it's a kind of epiphenomena of the continuance or the common co-occurrence of choice. Actually, I like that. That actually cleans up things a lot. I mean, in the scientific study of consciousness, you end up with some odd cases. Like, for instance, one of the leading theories is called integrated information theory, which claims that everything is consciousness, including a rock, right? And to the degree that a rock doesn't have any capacity for choice, at least in your formalization, one might say that a rock is not a self. Yeah, this is part of the direction. I mean, there's there's a lot of nuances that, that, that could be brought into this conversation, but I, I think that the general principle that you're describing is is, is, is basically correct. Yeah. Now, the other thing I like about it is I find an awful lot in consciousness studies of human centricity. You know, people smuggle in the human way too much. And I often use as a model animal as a white-tailed deer, which is reasonably intelligent, has some social behavior, but is nothing like a human, has no language, has probably no ability to manipulate symbols, etc. And yet it makes choice all the time. And some of those choices are effective and some of them are ineffective. So, I find it useful to have frameworks of this sort that are equally applicable to some of our near neighbors in conscious cognition. And it also is very interesting because it highlights what's different for us than for a deer, for instance. For instance, a deer does not appear to be future-oriented particularly. It's essentially an instantaneous decision maker. And we'll talk about that a little bit later where you actually highlight the fact that 
uh, probably more than we think of our decisions actually are future-centered. So I find that useful to remind people that when we're thinking about this question, don't make it overly human-centric because it is a more general argument. Yes, agreed. And I think that you know, to some extent, the question about smuggling in can can so first of all, agreeing with all that you're saying, and 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 kind of extending from that same basis, but on the on the mirror image, uh, it's very easy for us to to smuggle in a kind of set of assumptions associated with just even the nature of how we think about consciousness from a scientific perspective. So, for example, when we think about what is the scientific method, one of the things that uh, we can see about its capabilities as an epistemic process is that. Um, it's very, very good at working with things that are both observable and repeatable. So if I have a phenomenon that I can measure and I can, you know, have multiple people basically do those same measurements and end up with the same results, we can kind of create an objective correspondence that, yes, we are actually investigating a phenomenon that is that is part of the real world and not an element of any one of our choices. But in this sense, there's a uh, there's a sort of presupposition that, you know, phenomenological process that is observable and repeatable is amenable to the scientific method. And anything that is neither observable nor repeatable or just not observable and repeatable or not repeatable but observable uh, would therefore be fundamentally outside of the scope of what could be considered using the scientific method as an epistemic process. And so, in effect, when we think about choice and we think about things like choice, and, and so, for instance, if we if we say in the same sort of way that we can consider determinism as connected to existence, we can talk about uh, choice as connected to creation. And in that sense, you know, creation, like the creation in the sense of the Big Bang theory or, or something like that, is is as far as we can tell or, or have any possibility of being able to tell, is a unique event. It's not going to occur more than once, uh, at least so far as any observer in the universe would be able to discern. So in that sense, it's fundamentally not repeatable. I mean, it's certainly observable. We can see that you know there's there's all sorts of side effects from that event. But on the other hand, because of its not repeatability, our capacity to study that is 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 actually much more limited when using the scientific method. We can't do independent tests, so to speak. Um, but when we're talking about things like consciousness or perception or expression, you know, any interaction between the subjective and the objective, we notice right away that well, the subjective is not observable, and not only that, the perception and the expression is not necessarily observable. We can observe the consequences of the expressions, but we can't necessarily observe um, the, the forces that are involved directly. So in effect, there's a, there's a sense of having to interpose something in order to measure the forces, at which point you're, you're part of the interaction. Um, but in the same sort of way that, you know, if I have, you know, a person looking at a painting, what I see is their body. I don't see their looking. I see their eyes. I don't see the light that passes from the painting into their eyes. I don't have the sense of their subjective experience. I can certainly have theory of mind and, and, and have all sorts of hypotheses about what they're thinking and experiencing, but I don't see their consciousness or their perception. And I only see the expressions or the choices they make once the expressions have reached the real world in some sense and, and had an impact that I am myself engaged with. But of course, be a little careful with that argument. You know, for instance, with better brain imaging, we've just gotten to the point where you can tell what a person, at least in a very rude sense, what a person is seeing, what their perceptions are. This has actually been done. Have a person look at an X or a heart, right? And a person who doesn't know, double-blind experiment, but it's looking at the brain scanning images could tell you whether they're looking at an X or a heart. So the ability to 
see perception is already crossed the line from invisible to barely visible, and it'll only get better. Also, with respect to the phenomenology of the subjective state, I will admit it's a bit of a fudge in the science of consciousness, one of the tools that's used and has been validated to reasonable level of satisfaction is very simple. It's called the self-report. What were you thinking at the time? And there's been some very clever experiments using you know, very narrow experiments that show that people's self-reports are actually fairly accurate. They're not 100% accurate, but they're not bad. So, you know, so I'd be a little skeptical of this trying to wall off cognitive processes like perception and even the nature of phenomenology. There are things that can be reported. And, you know, saying that, you know, I was thinking about my first love, you know, it's probably fairly realistic compared to I was thinking about doing my taxes tomorrow. And one can actually use that kind of self-report in building scientific experiments. So I like to warn people away from thinking that the nature of consciousness is not amenable to at least some reasonable degree to the scientific method. Well, I appreciate your argument, and I, I definitely understand what you're referring to and such like that. I think part of the thing that I would I would sort of just kind of point out is that there are definitely neural correlates. Like we can make observations as to you know changes in brain state. We can get down to the level of, of measuring individual neurons themselves and establish correlations between individual thoughts or particular experiences and things like that. Um, but what is definitely part of the nature of, of the, the, the notion of conscious experience is a sense of localization in, in time and position and, and, and things that, that have a kind of um, character that, that, that are very difficult to account for when looking at it from a purely uh, physical point of view. So, for example, if we look at science from the point of view of you know, what the theory is describing, there's a, there's a strong sense in which it's, there's, there's a temporal symmetry. You, you have uh, no particular present moment is privileged relative to any other particular moment. Um, and there's there's no real reason for the arrow of time to be subjectively perceived as going one way versus the other. Um, so, for example, from a scientific perspective, there's a question as to why I can't just remember tomorrow's lottery numbers. So in, in, in this sense, there's, there's, some, there's some actual nuanced arguments that want to sort of be discussed in this space. And I, I think that um, you know, in, in preparation for that, I, I would have you look at the considerations of the hard problem on the MFLB website. We'll have to do that another day, because, of course, we could spend the whole day talking about that. But I just wanted to push back a little bit and gently. might be fun just to do nothing but that one day. <laughs> well, I, I definitely agree. This is kind of why I was I was I was kind of hoping you might you might get uh, curious about what I was thinking about those things. Uh, but it is definitely far afield of the, of the topic of ethics, and and I, I I guess my 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 point would be is that I I'm pushing back a little bit gently, but I, I mostly it's to just sh- to to sort of point out the nature of the question. These these questions are, are 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 tricky questions. There's a lot of apparatus that's sort of needed philosophically to kind of grapple with this stuff, and that would take quite a bit of time to set up well. Um, but I'm I'm basically wanting to just communicate that I really appreciate your point of view and been there and and with you on that. And, you know, let's, let's uh, explore that sometime. Yeah. Yeah. Next thing I'm going to get into, and I just as a editorial comment, I wish you had pulled this up earlier in the paper. It's down near the end. And that is that all of choice is uncertain. And then one can never know all the consequences resulting from one's least action. 
And you know, I, I wrote a number of notes to myself as I was reading. Huh, the poor boy doesn't consider the fact that we're we're actually fairly poor at making choices, and we don't have full information, and our models are incomplete, and by laws of chaos and complexity, we can't predict very far into the future. And so I was essentially smashing straw men because you didn't put on the table right up front that you know all of our thinking about such things must be based on the fact that our choice-making is always going to be relatively weak. Oh, well, I, I put it last because I thought it was kind of obvious. I, 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 first of all, I, you know, all the things that you're referring to, chaos theory and, and you know, the kind of fundamental non-determinism that seems to be written into the very laws of the universe, I'm thinking particularly of things in quantum mechanics and stuff, that, yeah, I mean, we, we, we obviously can't use reason alone because reason, no matter how good it's going to be, is, is, is going to have its limits. Now, this isn't to say that we shouldn't use reason. We should use the tools that we have to predict as well as we can what are the likely consequences and to understand in the model and to, to do all these kinds of things. Mostly, I was just putting that in to forestall uh, the sense of expectation that somebody might have that someday we could make choices that were in some sense perfect. And so when we're talking about, you know, the notion of effective choice, I'm, I'm basically saying, you know, these are practical things and they are, um, they're more than heuristics, they're actual principles, but on the same sense that, that heuristics aren't going to give you guaranteed results, that, that, that no deterministic process is going to essentially co-align with your chosen process such that it's going to have uh, 100% predictable results. Um, so in effect, it's a little bit more of an expectation setting as far as this is concerned than, than some sort of uh, epistemic observation. Yep. Even though, yeah, it's easy to assume people would know that. When one's dealing with philosophy, sometimes philosophers don't know that, or at least they haven't imported it into their model and they write things that are, you know, way too perfect, right? So it'd be really useful to put that right up front. <laughs> well, I, I definitely will will take that under advisement, and 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 you're probably right. I I, I tend to assume quite a bit of natural philosophy as being import, imported and incorporated. So I, I I wouldn't think that a person had done philosophy well if they weren't at least somewhat aware of of the way the world actually works. I mean, you know, to some extent, there's there's obviously a lot of opinions about that, and so on and so forth. But if we're going to be thinking about these things clearly. We should avail ourselves of the efforts of people who have been attempting to think clearly on these things as, as much as possible. Okay, now we're going to start digging a little bit more into the meat of what you're trying to communicate, at least what I took to be some of the meat. This is a pretty dense couple of sentences here, but I'm just going to read them and then get your reaction to it. To consider how to increase the effectiveness of one's choice is to determine what is meant by simultaneously preserving the integrity, and increasing the potentiality of both life and evolution. You introduced for the first time the word integrity with that sentence. And then you also brought in evolution. So what were you getting at with that sentence? Well, obviously several things. So <laughs> first of all, um, that's a delightful uh, thing to pick on. And, and so one of the notions is the, the idea that uh, when we're, when we're talking about life, and, and, and so I'm, I'm, I'm basically combining the word life and evolution is, is, is just to sort of hint at or to point to um, kind of the broad scope in which, in which these things would, would effectively be, uh, be thought about or considered. So in other words, I'm, I'm trying to sort of say, here's, here's where we're trying to, to go or what we're trying to address. So in effect, the, 
the sort of exploration that is that is involved in thinking about ethics. Now, first of all, just as an aside, this whole section, this entire paper, none of it's trying to prove any of these particular statements. I mean, there's there's other work that that does that. Uh, some of which has been published, some of it has has not yet. Uh, although it is just as an aside, something I'm 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 very much endeavoring to get into print pretty quickly. But in any case, the the, the notion of how do we arrive at these ideas is connected to the notion of integrity. Integrity is a, is a concept that is actually pretty important with respect to how do we come to understand these principles of ethics as in any sense being realistic or reasonable to, to, to use as a basis of one's choice in any world in which one encounters. So in effect, there's kind of a hint here in this, in this particular phrase that says, you know, one of the ways in which we can come to understand how to live well and fully or how to essentially uh, have evolution as a process work well is to shift our orientation to thinking about it in terms of integrity, um, that, that this effectively opens the door for us to come into an awareness as to uh, what do we mean by uh, effective choice. So in, in, in this sense, the, uh, the notion of integrity is treated as a, as a kind of primary concept. And so to define that, we're, we're basically looking at um, to act as one together. So that's that's coming from the, the, the root, as I understand it, to be uh, integras. So inter, to act as one together is essentially the translation of, of those root uh, terms. So, you know, in effect, there's a, there's a sort of notion of coherency. There's a notion of cooperativeness. There's a notion of of essentially that there are many different aspects and they have diversity and that they, they each kind of work uh, in their own way, but in a sense, they combine their efforts to be able to produce a result that is greater than the sum of the parts, um, that there's a kind of uh, product that's happening that is uh, more than can be accounted for just in terms of the individual components or the individual diversity, but is itself a result of the of the combination of the cooperativeness or the kind of community that emerges from that uh, that process. So in effect, the the, the notion of ethics as a as a set of practices effectively comes from how do we think about integrity? How do we think about integrity in terms of my integrity as a chooser, the world's integrity as affected by my choices, and particularly in terms of the capacity building, in terms of the channel of connection between self and reality. So in other words, if I think about the integrity of the communication channel or the integrity of the relationship, then insofar as I increase the potential of that a communication channel. I increase the degree to which that that channel, as a kind of cooperative structure, as a kind of connective tissue uh, between you know again diverse parts, because self and world are obviously different. But if we are to understand, in a sense, this sort of holographic perspective of how to think about integrity, both in the sense of the connective tissue and in the sense of the um, sort of origin point of those choices and the effect of those choices, then in effect we can start to see a a perspective that allows us to uh, essentially solve for all of this at once. And so the, the, the non-relativistic ethics, the specific statement of the non-relativistic ethics comes from uh, this orientation, and it ends up in resulting in a kind of uh, network effect, both individually and collectively. And so this assertion, this statement that you read back to me is uh, effectively kind of a, a, a sort of a waypoint. It's kind of a hint as to how all that fits together. Yeah, and then the next sentence, I think these two sentences together, I circled and said, this is kind of the center of this paper, right? To maximize potentiality and integrity 
is to maximize the combination of symmetry and continuity in the relationship between self, the subjective, and reality, the objective. There's an even more heavily loaded sentence. Maybe you could unpack that one a little bit, particularly try to elucidate how potentiality and integrity are related to the maximization of the combination of symmetry and continuity. So the principal concept to sort of think about as a, as a way of understanding this is in the channel, right? So if I, if I think about the event of the self and the event of the world and the event of some communication occurring between them, right? So every choice is kind of a communication event. It, it shows up as, a, as an action, but it's a signal that passes through a kind of conduit or kind of communication channel. So in this sense, we can, you know, kind of as, a, as an approximation, we can start to think about, you know, the kind of work that's been done with information theory. And we can say, well, what is it that, that defines a good channel of communication? What is it defines a, a, a communicative process that, that, that actually works well? Um, and some things immediately become uh, apparent. One is is that if I, you know, say, say we're, we're talking on the phone or, or as we actually are in, in, in the Internet uh, at the moment. If there was a uh, absence of correspondence between what I said and what was actually recorded or what you heard, then in effect, the communication channel would be uh, degraded. You know, we'd say that there was some mutation process, some uh, modification that was occurring that was basically taking what I had said and, and garbling it, you know, adding noise or, or randomness or, or just some other agency, some other person's intention. You know, maybe they edited what I said uh, as, as part of the, uh, the recording. And so, in effect, the uh, the notion of symmetry is effectively to say that there is a uh, correspondence between what is at one end of the channel and what is at the other end of the channel, or what's happening in the subjective and what's happening in the objective, uh, with respect to a particular choice or, or communicative intent. And so, in this sense, the the absence of symmetry between those two things would would effectively indicate a uh, a degradation in the integrity of the communication channel, or in this case, in the integrity of the relationship between self and reality. So obviously, if we're wanting to build the capacity of the communication channel, we're wanting to increase the degree to which it has uh, this symmetry and therefore uh, is faithfully representing uh, from, from you know, essentially the, 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 the subjective to the objective. The notion of continuity comes up in a, in a similar way, although this is a little harder to describe in, in, in obvious terms because it wasn't part of the original thinking about uh, uh, Shannon's uh, description of, of, of information theory and so on, at least as much. It was kind of implied, but it wasn't really described explicitly, uh, which is essentially to talk about the uh, relationship between the contents of the communication channel, i.e. what's flowing through the pipe, versus the nature of the pipe itself. So for example, if I you know, say we were having a conversation on the phone, but the phone had some sort of, you know, voice recognition software that was connected to the structure of the phone itself. And, and I was saying to you as some sort of psychological argument, yeah, I have these hangups about such and such a thing. And the phone heard the words hang up and assumed that that meant that the communication should be cut off. Then there would be a very abrupt shift of our being in contact to our not being in contact. And the, the overall event would effectively be not only the loss of communicative context, but, but also the loss of, of, of any communication actually happening. So in a sense, to sort of generalize this a little bit, we're, we're basically saying that there needs to be a sort of smoothness in the amount of, of energy that is, is essentially uh, being connected across the channel. So for instance, if we think about um, you know signal as being pattern uh, interposed on some sort of uh, atomic structure or some sort of energetic structure, that we don't necessarily want to have the 
the underlying substrate under which that pattern of that communication is occurring have wide variances in the uh, level of intensity that it's basically being conveyed with. Uh, so for example, if I uh, have a communicative channel that involves writing messages on a paper airplane and then, and then throwing them over to you and, and, and you receive the paper airplane by catching them out of the air, uh, that if I were all of a sudden to transition to writing the message by inscribing it on the side of a bullet and then firing the bullet out of the gun, it would probably be improper for me to expect you to you know, manually try to catch the bullet. So, you know, wide variations in terms of the intensity of the energy transmission, um, you know, for the signal can, can make a huge difference as far as whether or not the channel integrity is any good. And again, you know, I'm, I'm just sort of creating examples on the fly here, but, but anything that results in a substantial increase or substantial decrease in a kind of discontinuous way, a very abrupt shift uh, in the amount of energy through the channel can result in obviously a failure to receive the message and or um, you know, a degradation of the process itself. So in this sense, the notion of continuity also turns out to be critically important as far as uh, understanding in an abstract sense what is the, uh, the notion of a, a high-integrity communication channel. It, it wants to have this smoothness and it wants to have this symmetry in order for it to operate as a channel. Um, and, and obviously, these two things have a bit of a conjugate relationship because if I have perfect smoothness, then I'm not going to necessarily get signal. But if I have you know, no signal, then I don't have any symmetry either. So uh, to some extent, we can have a lot of both of these, but not perfection in, in both characteristics at once. And this is part of the reason why uh, ethics as a subject matter has um, a lot of, of, of actual translation from principles to practice in order to get it right. There's no, you know, one size fits all or, or a specific set of rules that are going to work in perpetuity in any particular world that is essentially immutable with respect to the totality of time. Now, things like Shannon information, as we know, are sort of very abstract ideas of a communication channel ability to provide interesting signal, but tell us nothing about the payload, right? When I'm thinking about the relationship between self and reality, one of the things that very much comes to my mind, at least, but you don't address at all, and I'd like to know why you don't address it, or maybe you would like to address it, which is... Every animal that is reacting with reality seems to create some form of model of reality. And the model, of course, is much coarser grained than reality itself because the map is not the territory. But if you don't have such a map, the ability for the self to navigate the universe usefully or successfully is not going to work very well. And so in addition to the communications protocols, the interaction between the model of reality, and that includes both physical reality and social reality, so when dealing with other people, seems to be at least as important as the attributes of the communications channel itself. Well, I think there's a truth to that. But again, you know, when we're looking at, first of all, just bearing in mind that when we're talking about the non-relativistic ethics or the way of thinking about ethics, we're talking about really primitive concepts. So, for example, I'm, I'm, I'm basically tying it to the notion of consciousness, but I haven't really described, you know, what are the contents of consciousness? And I'm talking about world, but I haven't really talked about the contents of the world. But you are correct to point out that uh, to to have some correspondence in the communication channel that is meaningful, um, that that there really wants to be some some structure or some correspondence between the the structure of what's in self and the structure of what's in world, just so that the uh, the richness of the communication channel or the dimensionality through which that uh, that connection occurs, of course, becomes much greater. So, for example, if I'm 
you know, say I'm, 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 a, I'm a young person, I'm, I'm, I'm 10 years old and my, my family takes me out camping and I'll look out and I'll see lots of trees and bushes and they'll more or less just be this field of green. But say I decide I, I want to know more about that. I go to college and I learn about botany and I, I get to the point where I understand, oh, that's an example of the species conifer or this here is an example of, of a fern. And now when I go back to that same place that I was camping previously when I was you know, much younger, uh, I'm going to have a completely different experience of that same space. I'm going to basically see a lot more of what's there in terms of individual species that um, basically represents a whole new layer of interaction. So in other words, while my, uh, in, in a sense of if I, if I draw an envelope around the body and I, and I basically say, you know, there's, there's forces of signal flowing through that, um, the dimensionality of that experience or the dimensionality of that expression has increased drastically because uh, rather than just interacting in a physical way, I'm now interacting in a, in a deeply cognitive way as well. And so, in effect, if we're if we're looking at what maximizes the integrity of the communication channel between self and reality, then to the degree that I can increase the capacity of that channel to handle all of these extra dimensions of process, then in effect, I've I've, I've definitely. I mean, this is not just a small upgrade. This is a substantial upgrade to the notion of what we mean by the communicative context and 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 the content, in terms of uh, just going beyond data as as we would have uh, say in in Shannon's. Uh, entropy and, and, and those descriptions to the notion of information, which has uh, more context associated with it, to the notion of meaningfulness, which has even more context associated with it. So, you know, in a sense, we're, we're basically observing that in order for the process to effectively have its maximum effect, both in the sense of, of the meaningfulness of life, um, you know, we need to go beyond just thinking about it in terms of the the individual signals to the correspondences that those signals have both internally and externally. So yes, I'm agreeing with you, but I considered all of this to be <laughs> considering the level of abstraction that was already in place. I figured I was pushing the limits already. I didn't know that I had much room to address these kinds of concepts. Gotcha. But I think it's actually kind of important because as you said, where we're going to now pivot to a domain, which perhaps you know, we've been kind of down in the weeds and sort of interesting, intricate stuff here. But now we're going to pop up a bit for a little bit, the things that people probably come to their mind when they think about ethics, which are value, meaning, and purpose. And particularly, it kind of pays off in meaningfulness. Maybe if you could dive in a little bit into your model of value, meaning, and purpose, and then how that leads to the concept of meaningfulness. So one of the things to know about that particular collection of concepts, so value, meaningfulness, and purpose, um, first of all, they're taking as those three terms are kind of archetypal in a sense. You know, so we're we're, we're kind of um, using those 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 notions as a as a proxy for a lot of other concepts that that to, could also be considered. But they they are essentially exemplars of a way of thinking about the relationship between self and reality. So insofar as these exemplars have uh, what would be considered a kind of triple aspect. So in the metaphysics, uh, the, the underlying you know, dynamics of, of, of the axioms, there's, there's an axiom three statement, which would say that value, purpose, and meaning are distinct concepts, but they are also inseparable and non-interchangeable. So there's, there's never a circumstance where I can just think about purpose without thinking about both value and meaningfulness. That, that anytime I think about any one of these concepts, that uh, at least implicitly I'm engaging with the other two as well. So in this sense, we can start to 
recognize that the other axioms may also play, that there's uh, essentially an applicability of axiom one to this statement to basically say that uh, of these three concepts, that the notion of meaningfulness is kind of the underlying concept and that the, uh, the notion of value and purpose or those two concepts taken together uh, are kind of in a uh, reciprocal relationship that is essentially held within the context of meaningfulness. So in this sense, when we're uh, thinking about um, values, we, we are kind of grounding the notion of value in, in the notion of meaning. And when we think about the, the notion of, of purpose or, or purposeful actions, or I'm engaged in purposeful actions, that there is underneath that a, a, a grounding in the notion of meaningfulness. And so in this sense, if I, if I find myself uh, getting kind of entangled in, 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 in purposes, I'm thinking too much about the goal, and I forget why was I even interested in that goal? You know, you can get into the sort of uh, metaphor of, you know, when you're up to your uh, eyebrows and alligators, you know, you, sometimes it's hard to remember that the whole purpose was to drain the swamp, right? So there's a, there's a meaningfulness notion as to why is even that important? What is the thing that, 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 was, that was essentially the underpinning that, that made selecting that particular goal out of all other possible goals that you could have picked? You know, what, what was the basis of that choice? And so again, there's a there's a kind of you know reification that occurs that we that we essentially uh, continually check to make sure that our our path or our goals or our, our our actions are are consistent with this underlying notion of meaningfulness, and that if we don't know what is the meaning of life or what is the meaning of our particular lives, then it can actually become quite difficult to to make good choices. So in this sense, there's a there's a there's a kind of Yes, we need value, purpose, and meaning. We need all three. And to some extent, we don't want to just have our thinking process confined uh, to just working in the terminology of one of those terms. If we just think in terms of values, for example, but never actually achieve anything in the real world, uh, don't have those translate into goals, then, then to some extent, uh, you know, again, the, the meaning of those values isn't going to be realized. So in this sense, what we're, what we're doing is, is we're, we're using the underlying topology of the axioms to clarify how we think about choices using the language of value, purpose, and meaning as a kind of reification basis. And maybe you could lay a nice, you know, homey example of the three together and particularly trying to pay it off in meaningfulness. It's a, you know, meaningfulness is this concept that gets used more and more, but I continue to find slipperier and slipperier. So to the degree that you can pay it off with the simplest example, that would be great. Well, okay. I'm, I'm, I'm hearing the question, you want an example. I'm not entirely sure of, of what. I mean, are you, are you looking to have me use those three terms in a sentence? <laughs> Yeah, we use the three terms talking about a single situation. You know, here's the value, here's the purpose, here's the meaning, and the meaningfulness links the value and the purpose, or you know, something like that. Use those three lenses simultaneously on the same situation, or same action, or same scenario. Great. Yeah, I, I have a metaphor to sort of define what the terms are and help people to understand how I'm using them. I, uh, one of the examples I, I give is is of a toaster. So. You know, we have this item, it's sitting in our kitchen and, and, you know, when we think about it, our, our relationship with it is to basically say, well, the toaster's purpose, its function is to cook toast. So I put toast in it, I push the button and a little while later I get, I get breakfast. And, you know, in, in one sense that, that defines kind of a way of our, our relating to it, but it, it's not the only one. So for example, as has been 
kind of presented in sort of intellectual games, for example. How many other things can you think to do with a toaster? Um, so you, you may decide, well, I can, I can use it as a paperweight or I could, I could basically use it as a doorstop or maybe I need something that I, I, I got to tie together and I can use the cord to, to, to do that. Obviously, you probably don't want to have it plugged in. But the, the notion here is, is that the item itself can have very many purposes, but all of these purposes are things that I ascribe to it from the outside. The toaster has no agency of its own. It's not going to complain if I basically decide to use it as a paperweight rather than as a toaster. And so, in effect, there's a there's a sense here that, from the point of view of the toaster, the otherness, which is myself, essentially ascribes to it function. It, it describes it imposes purpose from the outside. And if I were to shift into a, a different way of thinking, you know, so for instance, uh, perhaps I have just purchased the toaster, or I'm planning to sell it to somebody, um, then I would be making comparisons as to what its intrinsic worth is. Um, in, in one sense, uh, you know, we could say, well, its intrinsic worth is measured by the, the functions it could have. But to the purchaser, uh, maybe the value of the toaster is measured in the fact that it has so many grams of iron in it and so many grams of copper and, and so on and so forth. You know, so for someone who's um, basically receiving a toaster that is maybe not functional because the elements are burned out or, or something, um, they, they are thinking about it in terms of salvage or, or you know, what is its um, molecular uh, composition and you know do those things have a utility to me not in the sense of of what I might do with them but in the sense of what they are in themselves so for example if the toaster was made out of solid gold that would effectively be valuable regardless of whatever function it might have there's a there's a sense of intrinsicness associated with value so in in that sense you know the the value of the toaster isn't something that I'm imposing upon it from the outside obviously we could talk about money and so on but there's a, there's a sense in which there's a uniqueness associated with its atomic constituency that is fundamental to itself and not something that is essentially dependent upon whether or not I think gold has value. So that's, that's now a notion of value that is, that is to some extent described entirely within the envelope of the toaster. So if I draw an imaginary container that the toaster is sitting in, um, that, that the notion of purpose is something that comes from the outside towards the inside of that container. And the notion of value is something that is inside that moves towards the outside of that container. In other words, it's something that, that, that I perceive of the toaster uh, as, as being an intrinsic. The notion of meaningfulness has to do with the relationship. So it's neither an inside thing nor an outside thing. It's essentially in the dynamic of the relationship. So, you know, I might basically uh, be cooking toast, not because I'm looking for breakfast, but because I'm wanting to serve it to someone else. And it's, you know, maybe my significant other and I'm serving her breakfast in bed. And that to that extent, there's a romantic element associated with this that goes well beyond just the notion of of the function of the toaster or, or anything to do with its atomic constituency. So in this sense, when we're looking at, you know, the, the sort of romantic elements or the kind of connotative elements or the way in which this connects to the larger frame of life or to the larger uh, dynamics of of the flow of my day and things like that, um, then I may be uh, describing the toaster as a kind of narrative element in a story, or I might be uh, thinking about it as a as as something as a subject for a painting, for example. Maybe I'm doing a still life with flowers, and the toaster is in the background. So, in a, in a sense, there's a whole different notion of what we think of as the relationship between self and toaster, which doesn't necessarily have anything to do with its value or purpose as described previously. So if I'm wanting to essentially engage in ethical choice with respect to the toaster, to some extent, it's incumbent upon me to actually think about all of these dimensions. 
Uh, obviously, in daily practice, this might be a bit much. But on the other hand, when we're talking about another person, for example, so for instance, let's say I'm back in the Middle Ages and I'm a farmer and you know my wife gets pregnant and I have a son. And in one sense, I could describe that the function of the son relative to the farm and relative to the, to the economic entity that that is, uh, is, is to essentially help me in the fields and, and, and provide for common defense and to, to do all the chores and things like that. And so in effect, there's a sense in which, you know, for, for a long period of time that, you know, people were treated as if they were uh, objects of function and didn't have uh, much regard for the agency or the uh, inner life that that child might have on its own. So in a sense, we, we're now basically saying, well, if we, if we take the uh, neural correlate thing too far, we basically describe that human beings are, are machines, you know, they're biochemical machines, and they're all essentially to be understood in terms of purely reductive process. Um, then, you know, the argument could be made philosophically that there's no real difference between a human being and a toaster. But on the other hand, if we are going to ground that the notion of ethics is applicable, then to some extent, we have to go beyond just looking at the function of something. We have to actually start thinking about the inwardness versus outwardness, because it's in that that we can account for the notion of agency. The child has agency in a way a toaster generally doesn't. This goes back to the uh, reference you made earlier about a rock and whether or not it's conscious. So in effect, there's a, there's a sense here in which by recognizing agency, I can start to think about the notion of meaningfulness in a more grounded way than if I were to just try to treat it from the notion of value or purpose. Um, in any case, it, it does help to resolve some of the philosophical differences that would otherwise come up uh, if we didn't get down to this level of detail of really being correct about how we use this language. Yeah, I'm going to ask you a question that's not exactly relevant, but it's sort of one of my kind of head scratchers. In the world of people you and I both know, a lot of people talk about something called the meaning crisis. And I go, I don't know about any meaning crisis. I mean, it seems to me the meaning in the sense you just said seems to be ubiquitous and everywhere. Do you have any idea what people are talking about when they say there's a meaning crisis? <laughs> well, I, I, it's, it's funny you mentioned that. So I've, I've actually been thinking about this a fair bit, but I, I don't think I'm thinking about it in the same way that other people are thinking about it. So I I, I can tell you what my hypotheses are, um, but but honestly, this is a question of open research. Um, I know that there were people that have put together a particular thing of as to why to have this particular orientation. In fact, uh, I'm, I'm looking, hope, hopefully, to speak more with uh, John Viveki because I, I, I believe him to have more of an insight into this. But in any case, the, the, the notion that I've sort of come to be thinking about it in terms of a sociological process is that, you know, as physical beings, as human beings, um, a, a lot of our relational capacity and, and 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 biological process literally has to do with physical contact, like you know being able to give somebody a hug or to shake their hand, or to just be in the same room and see what their expressions are and things like that. And so, in effect, the the, the sort of shared context. If I'm sitting in a room with somebody and you know somebody slams the door or, or something falls off the ceiling or whatnot, uh, we're both going to, in a sense, be experiencing the same thing at the same time. And so, in effect, my attunement to his nervous system and his attunement to my nervous system allows us to essentially ground ourselves a little bit better with respect to that event. Uh, whereas, if we're looking at things like Zoom calls or you know internet communications or all of the virtualization that's associated with with the technology, all of which which interposes or intermediates uh, that relationship, that I think that at a at a, at a functional biological level. That the, that the sense of relationship that we have and the sense of self-soothing of the nervous system, the, the sense of 
of, of having a groundedness in life, which is connected to these biological processes in non-trivial ways, uh, largely gets supplanted. And so in effect, you see a higher incidence of people feeling depressed. You see, you know, people that are, are basically saying that, you know, my life feels empty. And, and part of the reason I think that that is, is simply because we've become over-engaged with technology. And to, you know, really describe that from a sort of psycho-emotional point of view is, is, is to kind of enter into a state, well, why am I here? What is this all for? You know, these, these are deeply metaphysical questions, but in another sense, they are also uh, kind of actually biological questions. You know, we are, we are part of the great chain of life. We have children and, 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 and continue the species. And, and, you know, we have interaction with the natural environment, with the plants and animals and so on. And so in effect, our, our, our sense of groundedness in community, our sense of groundedness in life is, is to a large extent directly a part of how we've come to be in the world as, as, as evolution has essentially prepared us for. And to a large extent, when we, when we start looking at kind of the side effects of uh, social media engagement as a primary mode of interaction, it's not so surprising to me that we would have uh, an increasing number of people basically feeling very ungrounded in their choices, particularly in their life choices. Um, and so that's kind of where I'm going with the, the notion of the meaning crisis. But I think that there were other uh, social political observations that probably go well beyond what I was just suggesting. Yeah, it's interesting. I have signed up to watch all 50 hours of John Verveke's Meaning Crisis video series, and I booked him for three podcasts in October. So hopefully I'll know a little bit more about this Meaning Crisis thing when I've done all that, but I'm still a bit of a head scratcher to me. Well, I'm definitely looking forward to hearing your observations and, and summary of that, because that would be, uh, as I said, some, some information to me as well. I have, I have notes on the topic. I've definitely done some looking into this, but but as I said, my, my ruminations have mostly been in the direction I just mentioned. Yeah, and of course, that's something I've talked about quite a bit, is that weak links are weak, right? And online discussions are almost always, unless they've been going on for years and years, weak links. And person-to-person -person are strong links. And combining weak links and strong links is a lot stronger than both, because weak links are cheap and far-ranging, while strong links are strong, right? And then, you know, there's you know, a lot of kind of functional debate on where do Zooms sit in between? I mean, it seems to me they sit somewhere between weak links and strong links, but probably closer to weak links unless they've been grounded in strong links previously, like, you know, when Jordan Hall and I have a Zoom, it's not much different than being face-to-face, -face. but with somebody I've never met before, it's, you know, a very different kind of thing, so. It's especially cumbersome for someone who has neurodivergent interactions like so for instance if you if you're already uh, someone that's had a lot of intense psychological process in the sense of interpersonal relationship in the in the immediate way then this these all these factors get compounded yeah I think that makes some sense now in the same section here we're talking about value purpose and meaning you return to the concept of morality and you say systems of morality which are defined in black and white terms are fundamentally antithetical to life and consciousness and are to be avoided. Say a little bit about that, then I'm going to turn that back around and make an argument for something a bit like morality. You know, I, I think in, in hearing that again, I, at this point, I think I would soften that a bit. At the time, I was reacting a little bit to the uh, overemphasis that, that is often given to rule systems as uh, defining of entire ways of being. I think at the time I was I was spending a lot of research on cult and cult dynamics and 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 really kind of saying you know these these rule systems that 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 create that are 
are, are, are problematic in a, in a kind of fundamental way. Um, but, I, but I think at this point, I've come to appreciate in, in the intervening years, keep in mind, this was, this was written uh, 30 years ago now, that there are a lot of circumstances where I, I actually see the value of, of, of well-calibrated rule systems. Um, so legal codes and things like that, I've, I've, I've really come to appreciate um, that there's, there's, a, there's a lot of civilization process that is, that is actually quite well thought of and, and, and so on. I, again, I don't want to defend any particular rule system or point of view in that sense, but I, I, I definitely want to uh, just indicate that I, I think I took too hard a stance in that one statement. Ah, good. You know, the way I look at this is that, you know, things like norms and rituals and legal systems and means of adjudicating contract disputes, etc. One of the main reasons they're so important for us as humans may not be as important to your alien that's a million times smarter than we are, is that they can reduce our cognitive load, right? We can't really think through from first principles, you know, how to adjudicate a dispute between two business people, unless there's some structure, right? So in the Anglosphere, we use the English common law plus some statute law, you know, plus the norm of writing it all down in a contract. And you're a business guy, you know that a contract never is complete, right? There's always ambiguity in it. And so then you have to have a way to resolve the ambiguity. And to have to figure out all that shit from scratch is way beyond even the smartest person much better to essentially build this expertise over, you know, in the English common law sense, probably 1500 years, where we have a experimentally derived, relatively tried and true set of mechanisms. Same is true for things like rituals. I mean, what's the the best way or what's a good way, at least I'm saying best, a good way to you know, say recognize our gratitude to each other? You know, wouldn't it be nice to have a ritual where we sit down for dinner, you know, we each express something of our gratitude to the other people in the room. If we did that repeatedly and without having to think it through and how to do it each time, we're more likely to do it and to build habits. You know, there's a big part of virtue ethics that argues that, you know, frankly, just building the right habits is a good part of virtue. So I'm less skeptical about these kinds of rule systems, but on the other hand, I'm very much a pragmatist on it, which is that they aren't handed down by some dude with a stone set of tablets who came down Mount Sinai. Rather, they're things humans invented because they help reduce our cognitive load to live well and they help us build good habits. Yeah, I think I'm in agreement with all that. I, I basically find that, uh, again, like I said, at the time I was looking at moral systems more in connection to religious things, which were uh, usually by fiat, you know, some some leader basically said, I want to have this rule in place so that I can maybe extract benefit in this sense, or I can try to basically make this thing happen. Uh, at which point, you know, the environment changes or, you know, leaders come and go and, and you know, centuries pass. And the, the, the circumstances in which that rule was created are very, very different than the circumstances in which that rule is being applied. Yeah, I think we agree on this. Yeah, I think we strongly agree on this. And I think it's very important to acknowledge that these things are man-made constructs, right? And that they, we own them. And if they don't work anymore, it's time to change them. And the idea of, you know, assuming that they are metaphysical in some sense is where you really get into trouble. Well, as you probably guessed, my sense of metaphysics doesn't really have much in common with the one that you're... Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah I better not use the M word. We'll be discussing the meaning all day. I just... You know, M, metaphysics, shit I don't like, goddammit, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. At least in, in that sense. Or actually, my definition of metaphysics is shit people make up with no evidence, right? And claim to be true. Understood. 
Anyway, so it sounds like we're closer on the same page there, that these things are useful, utilitarian, but they can certainly go too far, particularly when, you know, they're respected for more than their utilitarian purpose, I guess I would describe it as. I think you've made that point rather well. I, I don't know that I have much to add other than to say that when we basically come to a place where we need to re-examine what are the rules, the, the, the notion is that we got to go back to the principles and to the practices. So in effect, there's a, there's a kind of uh, stepping back from hard and defined rule systems to looking at what are the principles and what are the practices. So in the, in the, in the overall work of philosophy that I'm uh, presenting here, and this sense in which I'm, I'm thinking about this is to provide a toolkit to understand what those principles are. And, and so I, I didn't spend a lot of time trying to define practices. I uh, mostly avoided that because I figured that if I uh, were to put together practices, they would themselves become uh, too quickly a basis for some new religion or some new rule system and, and, and therefore, in effect, be more cumbersome. Whereas if I focused on the principles, then what could happen is, is that different cultures and different communities of people could effectively develop practices that were um, you know, culturally significant to them, that they would be able to embody these principles in ways that were uh, specific to each of their circumstances and that the diversity of life would, would continue to be uh, upheld. So, so in this sense, you know, to just sort of kind of coach or couch rather the overall conversation in terms of you know, what was my emphasis in thinking about ethics uh, it was it was largely to to get back to the principles and to encourage people to develop practices around those, uh, rather than try to encode those as some sort of uh, rule system, as as you've stated. Yeah, though you did lay out one principle which gets into this space. I'm going to read it back to you. This may be one that you want to back off of. I don't know, which is to act in accordance with ethics is an affirmation of the integrity of self and the significance of others. To require others to be ethical or to label them as being unethical is itself inherently unethical. I'm going to stick with that. So there's there's a lot going on in there. Yeah, yeah. That's a, this is an interesting one, right? Which is how do we build a society if we can't have some way of nudging each other towards some common way of being, right? Well, the, the, there is there is a translation of those principles into practice. So the nudge that you're talking about is a practice, and so in effect, there's there is communication that's going on to basically say, "Hey, listen, I don't know all the things that are involved in what's going on inside your mind. I don't know all the things that are involved in your process, but it feels to me like this is maybe less of an optimal choice for you know any sense of value that I would know of than than than, than you might like." And so in, in that sense, I could be given a pretty strong nudge to somebody without necessarily having to assume things, which I can't possibly be able to assume. So for instance, if we're looking at, you know, what is ethics as a process or as a practice? So it's a set of principles that effectively help me to make good choices. And in that sense, they're connected to the specifics of my choices. So in other words, I'm taking these principles and I'm applying them to myself in this specific situation. And so in effect, because that's an inherently uh, subjective to objective transition, it's, a, it's inherently an expression, uh, there's a kind of localization in the sense that I can't necessarily predict in advance what's going to be ethical. I don't necessarily know. Um, you know there's, there's, there's no real way to basically convert this to a um, you know, kind of omniscient frame where I'm going to say, you know, in general, this is the right thing to do without basically moving away from principles and, and trying to encode to some sort of of uh, rule system. 
So in effect, I'm, I'm basically saying, you know, to think about ethics is to think about it in terms of its principles and its practices as embodied in the here and now in, in the specific relationship between the subjective and the objective. And in any attempt to move outside of the here and now, to try to basically look at it from an outside point of view in terms of not myself the chooser, but in terms of someone else doing the choosing, uh, then at best, all I can really do is make assessments that are essentially incomplete. I don't really know. But I, I can definitely say, you know, with respect to my own choices, uh, that, that, you know, if I'm using these principles and, and I'm encoding them into, uh, you know, the, the particular practices of how I'm acting in this day, um, then, then to some extent I can be ethical. I just can't know whether or not anyone else is being ethical because all I can see is the outside of things. And we're going to, of course, you know, assume the nature of the ethics is about the interaction between self and the other. What does that tell us about things that, you know, we're not supposed to judge other people's ethics, but what about sociopaths, right? A favorite topic as a thought experiment. You know, I could imagine a highly integrated, consistent sociopath acting with strong integrity, and I still don't want that goddamn sociopath in my community. Well, you know, I, I, I have obviously mixed feelings about these things, right? So on one part of me, I'm basically agreeing with you because, you know, that, that particular type of personality can be very destructive to communities. Like you could have a, a highly integrated community of 100 people and you get one real, you know, particularly smart, bad actor and you can just literally wreck the whole thing. But on the other hand, there is sort of an evolutionary impulse here. So for instance, if I stand way, way, way back and I basically say, okay, well, say for example, that community happens to be, you know, in a war situation, they're attacked, it's already fragmented all the hell, and you end up with, you know, people basically trying to 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 sort of survive. And 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 you you look at it from an evolutionary point of view, and that that one psychopath may be the guy that knows how to basically deal with the war situation and 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 survive and endure. Um, to to move on to the next generation and 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 no one else does. Um, so in, in one sense, you can basically say, you know, when, when we look at the overall schema of uh, you know human beings in relation to environments, you know, it's kind of like search around, discover a niche, and then exploit that niche to to you know essentially continue. And so you have this sort of explore behavior, and you have this exploit behavior, and you have it occurring at the individual level, and you have it occurring at the collective level. So in effect, if we're going to model this well, we kind of need to think about it in those terms. And if we are um, really looking at this in a kind of dispassionate way, again, not making judgments as to you know what right or wrong or, 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 or whatnot, we're looking at it more from the point of view of effective as in continues to live or doesn't, um, then to some extent you might say, well, the sociopath is not very good at creating new things, but they're really good at exploiting them. Whereas on the other hand, you'll have you know essentially autistic people who are are really, really good at creating things and terrible at exploiting them. And if you don't have both in, as, as part of the genetic code, uh, as, as part of the neurodiversity of the species, then um, there's likely to be circumstances in which that particular tribe just doesn't endure. So in effect, you know, when I'm, when I'm looking at these particular things, I'm basically saying the neurodivergent hypothesis actually makes a lot of sense. It really works well. Um, but in terms of the specific integrity of a particular community and so on and so forth, yeah, you might want to have some uh, realistic barriers that detect sociopathy and detect essentially uh, people defecting from the from the common good and and stealing from the commons and and all the sort of uh, things that go wrong with rules of rulers dynamics and or um, you know multipolar trap dynamics that can uh, be very destabilizing and also cause uh, essentially a failure to thrive and, and and so forth. So you know at the individual level, I, I you know having a particular position in the neurodivergent spectrum and then also. 
you know, kind of recognizing this in a, in a very general philosophical way, I could say that my individual response and my collective response might be slightly different. Yeah, it's always interesting when that happens, right? <laughs> say, Mr. Kant, you were wrong, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's a whole other topic. I think I'm going to leave that one alone. <laughs> it's funny you mentioned sociopathy and autism, although you're probably actually talking about Asperger's, you know, a true deep autistic isn't going to create anything, right? There's can't talk, has no verbal skills at all. But I've come to describe Silicon Valley as the place where armies of autistics are led by sociopaths. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I really, really agree with that assessment. And at this particular point, I think that's one of the major hazards at a civilization level. Absolutely. And this is, I think, something we strongly agree on. And, And what's interesting is that both of those classes, sociopaths, and let's say high-function autistics, Asperger types people, are about one in a hundred in the population. And they're probably, you know, useful in the sense you talked about the you know, idea that your sociopath might be just the person to be your platoon leader when you got to fight it out with the tribe next door. But the inner dynamics of game A has initially pulled sociopaths into positions of power and now seems to be pulling, you know, high-function autistics into highly remunerative occupations in places like Silicon Valley. And you get this very, very strange effect. You go to a place like Google and you go, oh, fuck, right? Facebook, even worse, right? Where there's lots and lots of both, not just the 1%, the little bit of spice. You know, you have much of the management team dominated by sociopaths. You have much of the production inventors dominated by high-function autistics. Hmm, not a good place to be, probably, for the long-term stability of the human race. Well, it's it's interesting. So that that one percent, I would agree with, but it, I think I think that was true maybe you know a few hundred or a few thousand years ago. But I think that actually, when you look at it now, the percentages have increased. The the, the social economic civilization toolkit that we're currently using uh, tends to favor the development of both uh, autistic traits and sociopathic traits. And so, in effect, I think that we're seeing an increase in the population uh, on both ends as as far as the neurodivergency is concerned. So in the same sense that we have uh, with civilization, an increase in the level of specialization in terms of the total types of skills and, and, and manifestations thereof, we're also seeing that same thing happen at a neurodivergent level as well. Um, last I checked, when I was specifically looking into this to try to assess, you know, on a, on a kind of, again, sort of prime metrics basis, uh, the, the, both the sociopathy and the autistic uh, side of things had gone up to something like 4.5% from one. Each? Each. Yeah. Wow, we're fucked. Hopelessly. No, no. Actually, this in one sense is this may actually be a good sign. I mean, I, I, I think at this particular point, I, I find myself being a little more optimistic in that sense. But there's definitely a need for civilization structures that are uh, far more resistant to, um, as you said, game A, um, sociopathic kind of process. Um, but I think that to some extent, the creativity process has gone up somewhat as well. And so there's, a, there's at least a chance that the forces of, of goodness will prevail. That's a hopeful thought. We'll leave for another day. Right? I think we're going to skip over two very deeply nerdy topics unless you want to get into them. No, I think we've been nerdy enough. I'm going to leave it be. <laughs> okay. Symmetry and continuity, the principles of. Let me go on to the next page here. We get this a more interesting thing. Ah, this is where you talk about the differences between and relationship between perception and expression and that choices are not just about actions, but also about expressions. 
this is maybe a much simpler point than than would would <laughs> would initially seem. It, it it feels more complicated than it is. Um, just in the sense that there's a, a self to object relation, or there's a subjective to objective relation, or there's a there's there's you know any kind of thinking about that that there's two ways things can flow. They can flow from the self to the world, or they can flow from the world to the self. And if we just label those two directions of flow, a flow from the world to the self is going to be called perception, and the flow from the self to the world is going to be called expression. And so in effect, when we're thinking about uh, choices, we're thinking about essentially a flow from the self to the world. Um, and, and so I wasn't really trying to get into you know any kind of elaborate uh, process there. I was actually just trying to just remind people that this was the way in which I was I was thinking about those terms. Though you do lay an interesting ethical loading on it, and I'll read it right to, back to you. One must always and can only be responsible for the totality of their choices and expressions, neither more nor less. One cannot be legitimately required to account for one's perception or knowing in any domain, world, or universe. Expression is always public. Perception is always private. You know, that's an ethically powerful statement, actually. It is. And it, it is in, in the sense that it's it's actually based upon the, the, the notion of ethics that we've already given, which is that uh, insofar as ethics is connected to choice, it's not connected to causation. So in effect, there's a, uh, there's a sort of uh, figure ground relationship that we're trying to sort of bring to awareness with that, uh, with that statement, which is that if we're uh, wanting to think about ethics as a topic, uh, it's helpful to sometimes point out all of the things which are not within that topic space. So, for instance, if I if I basically had uh, you know 100 ideas written down on a piece of paper, and I can say, well, these 90 ideas have nothing to do with this topic, aren't going to help us to figure this thing out at all because they're literally about something else. Um, then I can I can focus my attention on the ten remaining ideas that that are going to be uh, able to uh, provide some information or some sort of insight. And so, in this sense, what I'm what I'm really trying to do is to delimit the, the 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 notion of how to think about ethics and the notions that would be involved in that thinking uh, versus the kinds of things that we could just immediately dismiss from um, you know being uh, even as 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 questions as being interesting. Um, so, for example, if I if I basically try to say somebody's knowing of something has a uh, requirement that they are to uh, do X or to do Y or to do Z, then in effect, I'm trying to take their choices away. I'm basically saying, well, the notion of requirements is effectively an obligate thing. And to some extent, it's no longer a choice. And to the extent that it's no longer a choice, it's no longer going to be something which is described by the principles of effective choice, because that applies to just choices. Um, So there's a kind of tautological element here, which I think is uh, you know, on, on one hand, it's interesting because it allows us to to clarify what we're thinking about in, in, in very specific ways. But in another sense, it's not that interesting simply because uh, we we had kind of implied that already when we described what ethics was in the first place. That's actually reasonable. And it also tells us what domain ethics applies in, which is in the movement of signal from self to world, but not what happens inside self, which means that thought crime should not be unethical. As stated, no need to add anything. Got it. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Now, here's again something quite topical to the world we actually live in at the moment. And this is about your claims for things that must be there for good, honest communication. The process communication is best facilitated when each participant freely, honestly, and fully grants to the other these three rights. 
the right to speak, the right to be understood, and the right to know that one has been understood. If there's any things that are not happening in our world today, those three seem to be it. Yeah, I would agree. I still feel very strongly that these notions about the three rights are are granted. So for instance, you know, I grant these three rights to you and I can't compel you to grant these three rights back to me. But on the hope that you do, then we have communication. Communication becomes possible in the handshake of each granting to the other these I mean, you could call them privileges if you wanted to, but there's there's essentially a a, a notion that I'm essentially honoring and allowing the freedom of your choice to speak or to not speak, what topics you choose, all that kind of stuff. And that in order for communication to happen, um, there's there's a kind of sort of structural handshake that happens. If you say something to me, but you don't know that I've heard you or understood you, um, then you you don't know whether you need to resend the message or whether the message got through, and therefore you're 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 basically uh, supplanting further communication with the uh, redundancy of repeating the message that you just said, which wasn't received. And so in effect, there's a, uh, there's a kind of uh, protocol that's associated with uh, good communication, which allows for us to, to do error correction, to basically notice when things get out of sync or when things basically become um, you know, off the rails because of, of, of some basic uh, protocol issue that, that really wasn't relevant to the, to the topic at hand. So in that sense, uh, you know, for example, I will uh, sometimes say to people, you know, is this what you meant? Or is, you know, I'm, I'm hearing you in this specific way and, you know, you get the option to basically say, yes, I meant that or I didn't. And so in, in this sense, we have a, uh, a sort of recognition that in the same way that we're, you know, as, as, as protocol designers or as communication uh, engineers or, or, or people that are trying to do good public speaking or all these kinds of things that, there are these, these deep principles that facilitate integrity in the communication process. So this is actually why it occurs in a section on ethics, because in effect, if we're looking at, you know, again, the theory about the relationship between self and reality as being a kind of communication channel, then one of the things that sort of emerges out of this is what makes a good high integrity communication channel? What are the kinds of practices that we would be engaged in that would allow us to essentially trust that the process of communication is actually working, that we are engaged in a you know, inter- interplay between two minds that, you know, each can't necessarily know the contents of the other fully, but that the nature of the communicative process allows for a, a larger reason to emerge or a larger uh, connectivity to emerge, that, that effectively something happens in the communication that, that goes beyond the self, both in the sense of, I'm obviously talking to someone who is not me, but in the sense that it has a meaningfulness that exceeds just the ingredients of myself and the other person. Yeah, I think it's hugely important in our Game B world, in our online system, we have, you know, something we call Rule Omega, which addresses the point number two, which is probably the one that's most being abused at the moment out in the wild. And Rule Omega basically says, assume the other person is attempting to send you a signal, right? And work in good faith to figure out what that signal is, even if they're not doing a very good job of it, right? Don't assume that they're sending you nonsense or something evil or something like that. And yet, as we know, particularly if you've ever participated in out in the wild Facebook or Twitter conversations, people love to just jump to gigantic assumptions that what you're saying is either stupid or evil or both. And that's not the way to have a good ethical, you know, high generative conversation. Well, I think that so. So first of all, there's this beautiful body of work that's basically considering conflict theory versus mistake theory. 
Um, so I'm, I'm referring to a, a body of work. I believe it's a state star codex that, that, that mentioned this, or at least that's the place I first encountered it. But the idea here is, is that um, for a conversation that is um, not a conflict-oriented conversation, we have people trying to dominate one another or convince one another to do something or, or to take some action or something like that, that there's, a, that there's essentially uh, already an assumption that, that, that we're trying to figure something out, that we're working cooperatively to learn something new about the universe. So there's a, there's a question, we're standing side by side, and we're basically just trying to, to make sense of the world. And so when I hear about Rule Omega, I, I, I generally interpret it as being particularly in the, uh, you know, can we correct perceptual mistakes? Can we correct thinking mistakes? Can we figure something out? And that um, for topics like this, for ethics and philosophy and, and uh, you know, things that have a very subtle character, obviously consciousness and stuff like that is not the easiest thing to talk about. There's a lot of difficulty and assumptions and abstractions that are involved and, and, you know, things that have very immediate practical consequences, but aren't necessarily obvious as to why that is the case. And so in a sense, there's a, you know, for any person that's engaged in a conversation like this, there may be some deeply held intuition that actually has a lot of merit that may be connected to something that's real and that, that, that is, uh, you know, a valid basis of perception and consideration. But it might actually be the case that although they have the perception and they have the uh, sort of nuanced uh, feeling of the thing. They might not be at all skillful at knowing how to encode that into words in the way another person would understand. So in that sense, if, if someone's trying to communicate something that's particularly subtle or particularly delicate, and we're already uh, in a context where we're, we're knowing that we're trying to do, do, to do this hard thing of, of communicate something that is genuinely difficult to communicate, that it is incumbent upon the receiver of that information to try to work cooperatively with the transmitter so that the transmitter gets the maximum possible assistance. So, you know, if I was, uh, you know, to use a Star Trek metaphor, you know, I'd boost the gain on the receiver and I would try to, 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 to you know, filter out the noise and I might send enough feedback messages to let them know that they've been heard or what, what's been heard and what hasn't and so on. So in effect, I've, I've, I've now become an active participant in the communicative process rather than just a passive listener. Yep, and it's, you know, one of the great failures of our age. You know, of course, at least one of our big political tendencies, the goddamn Wokies make it as part of their principle to suppress all three, right? And how the hell can you build a society based on that? And to your point, how can you act ethically when you can't communicate, when you try to suppress communications, you know, actively as part of your ideology? Well, again, you're you're going back to the to the notion of that's conflict theory, right? They they have a political agenda. They're tr- basically trying to make change happen, and so there's a there's a sense of you know kind of this addressing social inequality issues or addressing one another kind of issues, and it, to, to some extent, they're basically treating the issue as being more important than the process by which they they engage in it. And so, I I personally would say, well, maybe there's a means ends conflict there, but. That's exactly what I say. It's exactly what I say. In fact, I put out a, a call to see if I can get one of the more famous woke writers on my podcast, and I'm going to tell her right up front. I think we agree with respect to ends, but I think we have a huge disagreement with respect to means. So let's try to be respectful to each other, keeping in mind that we're in part in agreement and part disagreement. Well, bear in mind that the signaling theory, so for instance, if, if you bring someone like that onto your podcast, her or his or whoever, uh, just literally coming on your podcast would, would basically be signaling that they have some, um, you know, some respect or, or, or willingness to engage or, or, you know, if they, if they did actually say that they agreed, then in effect, they're signaling membership in a different tribe than they would otherwise be doing. 
And so in effect, there's a, there's, there's, there's a whole lot of implications associated with, you know, am I um, showing up in a way that would help other people to know that I'm with them? Or am I basically giving conflicted signals that is essentially indicating that I'm, I'm not trying to indicate membership as a member of a particular uh, orientation or such like that? Oh, yeah, I'm well aware of that. When, when I floated this to my community of people, a good percentage of them thought, you got to be crazy as shit to do that, right? And I go, yeah, it could be, but I've done it before. I actually invited one of my worst enemies onto the podcast, and we had a, a quite constructive conversation because we agreed in advance to only focus on the things we agreed on, which was kind of fun. Oh, well, it's, that's cool. I, I mean, again, I, I'd be interested to see how that goes. And at, at this point, I'm not going to speculate as to what actually happens. Yeah, yeah, I think that's probably wise. Unfortunately, got so much to cover and so little time. I'm going to pick one thing to talk about for our exit because it's kind of rich and interesting. And that is the meanings, relationships, et cetera, between want, need, and desire. Beautiful. So remember the example we used earlier of the toaster. Um, that's That becomes a way of, of thinking about these. So for instance, where do uh, wants, needs, and desires get, where do they come from and where do they get resolved? So for example, if I have a want, you know, I, I basically have to go into the outside world to get it. So think of uh, like, if we're talking about food, I might want a candy bar and I, I can't, you know, produce a candy bar out of my own body. Obviously I can't, you know, take my finger and magically transform it into this thing. I'm basically looking at um, something that can only really be satisfied through a purchase. Whereas if I'm looking at something that's like a need, um, you know, we, we may say we need food, but it's, it's not the food per se, it's the energy and it's the growth. And these are things that happen internally. So for instance, you know, I could have a bunch of food sitting on the table, but until I actually ingest it and make it part of myself, it doesn't really do any good. So in effect, there's a, there's a sense here in which you know, the, the, the notion of growth and the notion of love and the notion of things that, that, that can only really be satisfied through an internal process. And in that sense, there's, there's, there's a sort of deep inner working that occurs to create growth or to create uh, the capacity to move around and to do things. Um, and desire is something that isn't satisfied externally as it would be with a want or purely internally as it would be with a need, but is something that happens that is satisfaction occurs on the boundary between the inside and the outside. So for example, in the same sort of way that we would, you know, kind of draw an envelope around something and just basically say, okay, well, what's crossing the envelope? Um, the, the notion of meaningfulness, for example, crosses the envelope. I, I don't get to say for, you know, uh, in, in any, like in, in the English language, for example, I can, I can say the word dog and, and you might think of a furry creature with four legs. But neither of us define that term. It's essentially a term that, that lives in the shared re- interrelationships of all the people that speak English. And so in effect, what we're, what we're getting to with the notion of desires is that in the same sort of way, it's, a, it's an interrelational process. It's something that I can't satisfy internally or externally, but I can only satisfy in relationship. And so in, in these senses, it's important to uh, first of all, distinguish these three terms, because if I basically am trying to uh, engage in, uh, you know, externally seeking behaviors for something which can only be satisfied internal to myself, then that's obviously going to be ineffective. Uh, in the same sort of way, if I, if I try to solve deep inside of myself something that can only be solved by, you know, essentially uh, engaging with external process, um, then, then that's also going to be ineffective. So in effect, there's a 
there's a kind of uh, clarification as to, you know, at a personal level, how do we get better at identifying needs, wants, and desires and fulfilling those in, in, in cases where we are actually knowing that we have them. Well, I'll turn it around, let you pick one last topic that you would like to talk about that we did not cover. Oh, well, um, there's actually two things that I, that I feel really deserve mention. Um, one is, is the, is the notion of how ethics is treated academically. Like a, a lot of people think that we can think about ethics and, and consider the topic through things like trolley problems. You know, imagine a scenario where we can create a no win situation and, um, you know, how, how do we understand the topics of good choice on the basis of, of this situation? And I, and I think that just about every class of hypothetical of that particular term is immediately a removal from the sense of a person making a choice in a real situation. Um, you know, I might try to predict, you know, what should I do tomorrow, uh, given such and such a scenario, which may or may not happen. But as most people who are finding themselves in actual such situations, the thing that they ultimately choose to do may, might not have anything to do with the kind of intellectual considerations that they thought that they should be having beforehand. And so I, I think that one of the things that can really be misleading when we're thinking about these topics is, is that the topic matter itself is not one that is essentially addressable through uh, abstract considerations taken in abstentia. We basically need to uh, engage with the practice of feeling as much as with the process of thinking in order to be able to uh, actually make good, high-quality choices. Uh, so this was connected to the notion you mentioned earlier about uh, no amount of intellectual process is going to predict the future, but that doesn't mean that we can't make good choices. What it basically means is, is that we have to find other ways to do it. We can't just rely on intellect alone to do the job. So in effect, this is part of the reason why I was emphasizing the notion of value ethics earlier, because to some extent, if I feel through the situation, I say, can I be coherent? Can I be a whole being, all parts of myself, ones that could align behind a particular choice that I'm being faced with, then the notion of goodness in that choice is being affirmed in a different way than it would be if I could predict the outcomes and establish that those outcomes corresponded to some virtue ethics that I had selected in advance. So in effect, I'm basically describing virtue ethics as an embodied truth, not necessarily something as an intellectual truth. And so I, I, I mention this specifically because a, a, a lot of people basically get confused by this particular uh, distinction and and it ends up becoming uh, one that that leads to a lot of needless debate about nothing essentially. Um, so I, I I did want to highlight that specifically. Um, the other thing that I I think would be maybe relevant to mention is is that again there's there's this you know really fundamental abstract way of thinking about ethics, but there's there's kind of key ideas that come out of this which basically says you know a lot of cases we can make good choices. It is possible to do. And that by understanding these principles, we can understand how better to do that, both individually and collectively. So in, in kind of the sense of, you know, we have developed technology, we've got all of these newfound powers with, you know, chemistry and computer science and all the rest of these sorts of things, um, that, that it's actually become more and more incumbent upon us to make really, really good choices. This is why, uh, you know, topics of X risk and civilization design and all the rest of this sort of stuff um, basically are, are mentioned very much in consideration with, with the topics of ethics because the, the principles of ethics become the ways in which we as an embodied culture, we as an embodied community, can effectively be in right relationship with the natural world, with other people. And so in this sense, there's a sense in which we're not just embodying the ethics as, as individuals, but that we're embodying the ethics as communities, as, as entire nations, or, or in, in this case, as an entire planet. 
And so in that sense, because of the increased capacities that technology has brought to us, the increased relevance of ethical thinking and, and, and ethical feeling in the sense that, that I'm describing here uh, becomes uh, ever more important as a topic to understand well and to basically engage with, with considerable skillfulness. Well, that's a great place to roll out because this is not just philosophical bullshit. You know, we have to get this stuff right if we're going to survive as a species. That's correct. Well, I want to thank you again, Forrest. I want to chastise myself for not doing a better job of getting through my topic list on a timely basis, but Forrest did his usual interesting job of answering the questions I was able to get to. And people would like to learn more about this paper. We will have a link to it on the episode page at jimrutshow.com as usual. So thank you, Forrest, for a wonderful conversation. Many blessings, and I look forward to our next occasion. It'll be good. Production services and audio editing by Jared Janes Consulting. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.